This is season two of Mobile Suit Breakdown, a podcast about Japanese sci-fi mega franchise Mobile Suit Gundam for new fans, old fans, and not yet fans, where we watch, analyze, and review all 40 years of the iconic anime in the order it was made. We research its influences, examine its themes, and discuss how each piece of the Gundam canon fits within the changing context in Japan and the world from 1979 to today. This is episode 2.25. Win every battle, lose the war. And we are your hosts. I'm Tom. I'm a lifelong Gundam fan, and I enjoyed our break, but I am glad to be back. And I'm Nina, new to Zeta, and I could use an actual break, one where we don't do the same amount of work as usual. I don't understand. I know. Mobile Suit Breakdown is made possible by the support of 269 patrons. Thank you all, and special thanks go out to our newest patrons, Solon, Jen M, Justin P, Digimon Rocks Admitted, Andrew D, Matthew T, Brendan R, and Pepto Dismal. If you'd like to support Mobile Suit Breakdown and get access to our patron discord, bonus content, and more, you can do so at GundamPodcast.com slash Patreon. We also need to thank Chen T for sending us a new pop filter from our wishlist, and Gus for sending me some Gunpla. In an effort to convince me that the Zeta Gundam is not, in fact, a boring MS, he sent me the SD kit. I haven't started building it yet, but it's so cute, I'm already coming around on it. <laughs> And thank you to Bruce I for supporting us on Kofi. We recently set up a Kofi page for anyone who would like to support the podcast with a one-time payment rather than an ongoing subscription. You can check it out at ko-fi.com/gundampodcast. And now back to Gundam. This week we are covering Mobile Suit Zeta Gundam episode 24, Counterattack. After the recap and our talkback, our research for this episode covers some Japanese language notes, Von Braun City, Desertification, and a third and dare I say final update on The Birds Will Laugh at Me. But first, let's tune in to TNN for an update on what happened last episode. Victory in Von Braun City. Titan's forces have struck the Aug's hidden base on the near side of the moon, ending the threat of an Aug Earth invasion once and for all. Here, Lieutenant Commander Donahan and Captain Sirocco observe the fleet's terrific bombardment of Von Braun. Now, one intrepid battleship moves in close to pulverize the city's antiquated mobile suits. The Titan's Dogos gear detachment starts for the lunar surface while the Jerido squadron holds off AU raiders. Expecting another Amon, the surprised Titans meet only light resistance as they secure the spaceport. From the very start of the battle for Von Braun, the space noids launch desperate and unceasing mobile suit attacks against our fleet. In one skirmish, more than a dozen enemy mobile suits are shot down. The space noids try everything, including new transformable mobile suits and some of them even succeed in damaging our ships. But AU numbers are continually whittled down. Soon the Space Noids will be forced to field half-trained teenagers instead of veteran pilots. 
Operation Apollo, the campaign to win Bon Bron City, vital as a base within easy range of Earth itself, is over as soon as it has begun. Titan's losses are high. AU losses, staggering. Now Lieutenant Commander Donahan and the Titan's forces must root out the AU traders who have gone to ground in the Lunar City's innumerable hiding spots. Space sees its doom drawing near as the Titan's flag is firmly planted within meters of where humankind first set foot on the moon. And now the recap for Counterattack. Although their loss at Von Braun City still weighs heavily on them, there's more to war than just battles, and the crew of the Argama struggle with supply problems and how best to deploy their limited number of mobile suits, while Commodore Blex and Quattro head to Earth for a meeting of the Federation government. Federation headquarters is in Dakar, Senegal, a city consumed by the desert. It becomes clear very quickly that Earth politicians don't care much what happens in space. They are even considering giving the Titans full control of the Federation armed forces. Ecological conditions on Earth are deteriorating rapidly. Africa is more than half desert, and yet Haimem and other Earth politicians insist that everything is fine. After the first session, Blex and Quattro discuss proposing an urgent motion that all politicians move to space. There is a chance that Ayug will be able to retake Von Braun City, and Bright sends Camille, disguised as a local college student, on a mission to find out how many Titans mobile suits are stationed there and how the local population feels about the Titan's occupation. Feeling overlooked and excluded, Katz stows away on the mission. Just outside the city, Jamaican is glad to see Sirocco finally leaving. The man had no grasp of the situation, no control of his subordinates. Due to Jared's injuries in the battle to capture Von Braun, he and Moar stayed behind. When they asked Jamaican to place them on mobile suit teams, his disdain couldn't be more obvious. We have enough pilots. Think of this as a holiday, go shopping or something. Jared can't be bothered to argue and storms off, with Moar following him. As they walk off the spaceport, who should they run into but Camille? A guard has stopped him and Camille, pretending to be lost, looks around for any bit of information. Jared makes excuses for him, claiming that Camille is his cousin and just crazy about ships. Camille then tries to escape by running into a nearby park, but Jared and Moar catch him in no time. Jared threatens to kill Camille. A shocked Moar exclaims, he's just a child! But Jared counters, he's no child, he killed Lila and Kakrakon. Suddenly, Moar understands who Camille is and wonders aloud if he's a new type. Camille's insistence that he's not only seems to make Jared more furious. He cannot possibly accept that his mentors were killed by an ordinary kid. While Jared and Moar decide what to do, Katz appears out of the shrubs, putting his gun to Jared's back and forcing him to let Camille go. Disarmed in mere moments by a spinning kick from Jared, Katz still manages to create enough of a distraction that he and Camille can get away, running through the crowded streets with Jared and Moar chasing after them. On Earth, Quattro arrives at his hotel to the sound of gunfire. Sprinting toward Blex's room, he finds two dead guards outside the door and Blex bleeding to death in bed. In the moments before Blex dies, he tells Quattro that he knows him to be Shar Aznable, and that he must now step up to lead Ayug. Back on the moon, 
a group of Titans scouts spot the Argama some distance from Von Braun. Their leader decides to launch an attack, failing to send word to Jamaican and leaving the Alexandria scrambling, while on the Argama, pilots race for the few available mobile suits. Haro darts out under Rekoa's feet, tripping her up so that Fa can get to the Methus first. The fighting moves closer and closer to Von Braun itself, until Camille can sense the Argama overhead as he and Katz jog through back alleys. Shot down, a Hyzak comes crashing through one of Von Braun City's skylights, sending air rushing out into space. Sirens sound, and hatches open in the walls, revealing safety masks. Camille and Katz join the flow of people, each grabbing a mask and getting into the nearest airlock. It seems like fate when Jared and Moar are there too. They sit there, eyeing the enemy from across the room, while the locals also note the presence of the Titans and begin to complain loudly that only the Titans would start a battle this close to the city, that the Titans are demons polluting the earth and terrorizing space noids. Meanwhile, the fighting continues both in space and on the streets of Von Braun. Fa struggles with the Methus's controls. Through nervousness or mechanical problems, it's hard to know, and enters the city through the broken skylight. She's followed by one of the Titan suits and freezes in panic, only to be rescued by Apoli. Again, Camille can sense something about the fight outside. This time, he can feel the Zeta approaching and knows that he should join the battle as soon as possible. Camille passes Katz a gun, and Katz covers him while he makes his escape. Once Katz has disarmed Jared, he follows after Camille. A young boy tries to stop Jared and Moar from giving chase, but Jared easily knocks him to the ground, and no one else makes any move to stop them. By the time they rejoin the Alexandria, Jamaican has decided to retreat. Ayug is winning the mobile suit battle, and has taken over the Von Braun power station. He can't risk them capturing the Alexandria too. In Blex's absence, the Earth Federation government votes to give control of their armed forces to the Titans. And on the Argama, Fa is distraught that her focus on the battle caused so much damage and destruction to a city full of innocent people. Camille insists that since they all made it out alive, it's okay, but it seems as though the person he's trying to convince is himself. In this episode, we get a, uh, for lack of a better word, shiny new opening. Shiny is a pretty good word. It you is. You don't need a better word than that. They still use some of the same animation, but a lot of the animation is completely new. It's very sharp, very high quality animation with a glossy look to it. Sheen. Sparkle, <laughs> sparkle. Interesting to note that First Gundam did not change openings at the midpoint, while Zeta does. It may also just reflect the greater prestige of Zeta, the greater money at their disposal. I don't know how costly it is to do a new opening, but I'm sure it's reasonably costly when you already have an opening done. Yeah, and it's a new song, not in the official Western release, but in the original Japanese, there was a new song. And... The animation quality in the opening is usually the highest for the whole show. Plus, it's usually different animators, people who specialize in doing openings. 
What's really interesting about the second Zeta opening is actually while it's very different from the first opening, there's a lot of new animation, as Nina pointed out, there's some big changes and some small changes. It is structured very similarly. Yes. It is clearly an update on the original, not a completely new opening. Some of the old animation is reused in different ways, like it'll be put in a frame and put into the back and kind of desaturated. Or different backgrounds or because we still have the Camille giving the thumbs up right. shot. But I think the backgrounds are different in yeah. this one. Well, I'll, I'll want to come back to that <laughs> okay. specific shot in a second. I think the best example for the shift from the first opening to the second is Quattro's appearance. Mm. In both the first and the second opening, we get a shot of Quattro taking off his glasses and then looking stoically up in a heroic kind of pose. But then in the second opening, it doesn't stop there. He shifts. He looks down. Everything gets darker. He becomes clouded in shadow and his eyes look off to the side. There's an additional layer, additional depth as his character takes a darker turn that will perhaps be represented in the show. <laughs> then there are the big changes, the appearance of Sirocco 4 and the Zeta Gundam. Plus the complete reworking of the shot of all of our allies. Because in the, the first opening, we get a lineup of, you know, Bright, Fra, Mirai, Hayato, Kai, Kika, Katz, Let's. We get, get all of them in a row. In this one, the composition's a little more complicated. Uh, people are at different distances from the screen, uh, on different sides and at different angles. And the focus is very much on the characters appearing in the show now. And so there's no Fra, there's no Kika or Let's. Uh, I believe Rekawa is in there or Emma is, right? Some of the new mm -hmm. people are there. Bright is still there. Katz is still there. Well, and Katz is in the center of the frame now. But now I want to talk about the scene you mentioned earlier of Camille giving the thumbs up. Mm -hmm. This is very subtle. But if you watch the two side by side, in the first opening, he gives the thumbs up and he smiles. In the second one, he gives the thumbs up and he doesn't smile. Camille, who stole your smile? Who's responsible? The war, Tom. Tom did the sad looking away. First I looked up stoically, and then I looked away. My character, too, will take a dark turn in the latter half of this season. I don't know if this was in the original. I also noticed in this one, it struck me watching it, that in his hand is reflected in his faceplate in this one. You see this very distinct reflection of his hand in the faceplate as he's giving the thumbs up in this second opening. It's all quite beautifully done. It's just like glorious attention to detail. The first thing I noticed in this episode was that in the initial scene, they sort of shift the focus to, to the non-battle elements of war. We have Bright's line about there's more to war than just battles, and then they proceed to talk about logistics, diplomacy, the fact that there's new structures and cities being built, you know, supply issues, organizational issues. You pointed out that feels like the theme for the whole episode. Definitely. That first scene sets up the way the episode is going to work with these two interwoven and related storylines, the battle in space to recapture Von Braun City, and then on Earth, the political battle where Quattro and Blex are attending the Federation Council or Summit, Summit. <laughs> the totally not the United Nations of the Universal Century. And they're doing something that in the grand scheme of the war is actually much more important. They're trying to 
prevent the Titans from taking control of the Federation forces. And at the same time, Blex is actually trying to reform the Federation government. Now, during the episode, these two are intercut, so they're both happening simultaneously. We're not going to talk about them that way because that would be impossible to follow. So, Nina, which do you think we should talk about first? Let's talk about the political situation first. We get this sort of slow cut in, right, from outer space to the continent of Africa, to the desert, to a city in the desert. Dakar. Which they don't actually mention in the episode, right? That's Do they not? I don't think so. (laughs) I think... I don't think it's a spoiler to say that that's Dakar. They do appear to be zooming into the sort of northwest portion of Africa. The setting feels particularly significant because it highlights the desertification. Half the continent is desert at the time that this takes place. And desertification in Africa is an issue that I've definitely heard about throughout my lifetime and concerned that the Sahara is going to just kind of engulf everything around it. I did not realize that it was an issue going back to the 80s, but apparently... (laughs) Um, It is. And so is climate change denial. (laughs) Yeah, this is something Blex says in the dialogue that the politicians on Earth are denying that there's any problem. That they ignore the reality of their situation and insist that everything is fine. Now, what really makes this such an excellent angle in this episode is that it's not just handled through the dialogue. We also see it visually with that slow pan across the desert. And then we go from the desolate wasteland of the desert to this shining, gleaming, carefully manicured city with little gardens and tall skyscrapers. And we can see immediately the contrast between between the environment the ecological world, and then this facade that has been built and in which all of these powerful human people live. And in almost a perfect encapsulation of many of the conversations that we are still having about the environment, uh, Char's last line in the episode is something along the lines of those who sold their souls for their immediate needs. And he's talking about the politicians specifically, but you can almost expand it out wider to the whole of humanity and people who, in trying to satisfy current issues, are ignoring things that are 10, 15, 20 years out. And how insidiously appealing the message of somebody like Hyman can be, because he's saying politicians who live on Earth should stay on Earth. Everything will be fine. We'll take care of it. All you need to do is empower the Titans. We'll do violence to those nasty space colonists, and that will solve all of your problems. I do think we get some added depth in the Ayug position here because it's two-pronged, right? Part of it is how can spacenoid concerns and needs be represented by politicians who have never left Earth, who have never been to space? Who are terrified that they'll catch space sickness if they leave. It's a disconnect between the government and the governed. Which is a a constant struggle. I mean, how many U.S. presidents make it out to Alaska and Hawaii during their terms? (laughs) Just to put that out there. Um, And that's not even a separate planet. Like That's not even a separate country. It's not even a separate continent. Uh, And yet, it's a pretty rare thing that a president visits Alaska. It's not a lot of people there, but it is part of the United States. And yet... Well, expand it out even beyond that. Go back to the founding of the American Republic. The rallying cry for the American colonists engaged in the revolt against the British Empire that eventually became the Revolutionary War, as we remember it today, was not, we don't want to be English. And it was not, no taxation. It was, no taxation without representation. We are not being adequately represented in government. 
Therefore, we rejected the legality and legitimacy of these rules being imposed on us by a government completely detached from our needs and experience. Think how rare it is in the history of human government for the capital of a huge empire to be moved out of whatever landmass was the originator of this empire and into the colonies, into the provinces. The only time I can think of this happening is when the Portuguese royal court fled Portugal and set up shop in Brazil. And this brings me to the second point. Blex mentions the possibility of bringing an emergency motion to move the entire government to space. So this is not just a, we think you need to visit space so you can adequately represent space noid needs. This would be, I was going to say symbolic, but it's, it's not symbolic. It, it is the thing itself. It's a sign that they are abandoning Earth. If you move the government away from Earth, you are saying the future of humanity is not on Earth. It is in space. But it's also interesting that Blex is not an independence advocate. He doesn't want to break up the Federation. He just wants to move the center of power for the Federation off of Earth and into space. But I do think that moving that center of power is not just about moving power from one place to another. It's about shifting humanity away from the planet Earth. I think that's true. And I think that's consistent with everything Blex has said so far. Yeah, absolutely. Blex is... Even if his feelings about new types, per se, are not entirely clear, it's definitely the case that Blex has a kind of idealistic, forward-looking view, and he sees space as the future home of humanity. Earth is a cradle, but you have to leave the cradle eventually. I'm going to have to look at some photos to determine this, but the, the hall in which they meet looks just like uh, portrayals of the UN. I would really like to see what the UN General Assembly chamber looked like in the 80s. I'm sure we can find photographs of that. I'm sure. And looking around the room, there's a long pan over all of the leaders. I think they are exclusively male. And with the exception of one gentleman dressed in traditional Bedouin attire, they're pretty much all white, too. Notably, the blackest character who has yet appeared in Gundam is in this episode, and he's the driver. I don't think this is unintentional or thoughtless. We have seen that Gundam's idea of what the future looks like is multiracial, multiethnic. Look at the names, look at the characters from first Gundam. To then see that the seat of power and the government itself is all men and basically all white says a lot about it as a governing institution. It belongs to the past, man. It is a fossilized relic of privilege and power, incapable of looking to the future. And that is everything that's been said about it, everything it has said, and the depictions of it visually all working together. Give us that. I have just one other uh, main thought related to this part of the episode. Where the heck was Quattro while Blex was being (laughs) shot? Like, ostensibly, his entire purpose for being here is to protect Blex, and he's off by himself and leaving Blex with one guard. Please. What is that? Indeed. What was he about? It's almost like he wanted Blex to be killed. No. Say it ain't so. I mean, I don't think he did, because there'd be no reason for him to act so, like, no, Blex, hang in there. Like, like, what's the point? Dude's already dying. You don't have an audience. Just going to point out, though, that with this event, everyone who has ever commanded Shar Aznable is now dead. Also going to add, that final scene with Blex dying on the bed 
is constructed almost identically to the death of Xi'an Dekun back in First Gundam, even down to the visionary leader lying, dying on his bed, reaches out his hand and clasps the hand of his designated successor, passing on the mantle of leadership. Look at their beards sometime. Xi'an Dekun has a mustache and Blex doesn't, but they both have the same chin-strap beard. How is Quattro going to pervert this philosophy, I wonder? Not only does this mirror the scene in which Xi'an Dekun supposedly passed the mantle of leadership on to Daegwin Zabi, but this is the second time someone who is kind of like a father figure to Kasval slash Shar slash Quattro has died and left him with the burden of carrying out the dead man's vision and changing the world. Plus the unsurprising reveal that Plex has known all along that it's Char. <laughs> oh, well, but see, Quattro removed his sunglasses before going into that room. Mm -hmm. So that's probably when Blex figured it out. Oh, he saw Quattro. <laughs> no, I'm okay. kidding. But he, he finally saw Quattro without the sunglasses. And that was when he was like, oh, you're actually Char Aznable. Tell Quattro, tell Quattro <laughs> he was a terrible bodyguard. Ugh. So I actually really love Char's sunglasses because they serve a really fantastic emotional purpose in the show. When he's not wearing his sunglasses, you know it's a very emotional and like vulnerable moment in a way that other times are not. You know, he's not wearing them when he reveals who he is and kills Kaecilia. He's not wearing them when he fights Amuro. He's not wearing them when he finds Blex dying. If you can see his face going down. And ultimately, maybe because of Blex's death, maybe it was always going to happen. Maybe it was because of the successful capture of Von Braun last episode, but the Titans achieve their objective. They are given total control of the Earth Federation forces. Everyone cheers. I believe that leaves us ready to talk about the situation in space. Yes, let's rewind back to the beginning of the episode and the beginning of the battle in space. On and around the moon. And inside the moon. It's the littlest thing, but because I love these little animation moments, I'd like to talk about that first scene. Hmm. And <laughs> Beckner. I think I know what's coming. <laughs> well, so Beckner almost like pointedly takes Bright aside. Says, oh, I wanted to talk to you about this other thing. But he clearly notices Emma there. Rekawa notices him noticing and walking away. Like Rekawa has a little smirk <laughs> and looks from one of them to the other. And that tiny expression on Rekawa's face just makes the scene for me. It's such a little detail, but it's so great. People talking about Tomino's directing style like to talk about the great framing of scenes, the really interesting and exciting mech choreography that nonetheless remains very clear as well as his tendency to use stark shifts in color and those like cut-ins where there's a segment of the screen that's devoted to somebody's face. Mm -hmm. Those are all classic Tomino. But the more I'm watching, the more it's becoming clear that perhaps his most defining signature style is the amount of time and attention that is devoted to very mundane physical movements. But always in a way that tells you something about the character. Like, I'm remembering how we noticed early on in First Gundam that Mirai is always chewing on something, like the straw in her drink or the antenna on a radio. Yeah. <laughs> like I said movements, but I really should have said body language because that's exactly what it is. It's little movements that convey so much meaning. 
So later in that scene, we see Beckner really obviously turn to stare as Emma leaves with Rekoa. But for me, the moment that makes it is Rekoa clearly taking some enjoyment from the fact that this is an uncomfortable situation <laughs> for both Emma and Beckner. <laughs> I'm very frustrated by this episode's treatment of cats. How so? Because he did a very foolish thing. But it worked out, and so he's essentially rewarded for it. Mm. I don't know if he's rewarded for it. He's not punished. And I do get that the absence of a punishment could be interpreted as a reward. I suppose I mean, in some sense, that he succeeds. Mm. Like, Though he does get quite badly injured there at the end. In a, in a narrative sense, he is rewarded with <laughs> success. Yeah, so I think that's part of this episode's overall theme of subverting expectations. The setup there at the beginning with Katz really jealous of Camille, wanting to make his mark, stowing away aboard the moon car. All of that is set up in a way that makes you think, okay, Katz is going to screw up somehow. Camille's going to need to save him. Katz is going to learn a lesson. Everybody grows. That's not what happens. In fact, Katz saves Camille several times and is an indispensable part of the mission. Even though it's not without its mess ups, he does get disarmed pretty handily <laughs> by Jared at one point. That was a good kick. He has to abandon Amaro's gun. Gets it back by the end. He does. I'm just saying, like, it's not without difficulties. Yeah, yeah. As you pointed out, he does get injured. Um, the jealousy clearly remains when Camille is positively identified by an AUG supporter. Uh, Katz frowns deeply and looks so away. Deeply. Katz wants to be the hero. He was on the white base, darn it. And it feels very typical that here we have Katz, who is, you know, three years younger and has been doing this for considerably less time, despite having been on the white base long ago. Uh, and he's acting a bit like a spoiled kid. He's acting like a teenager who feels invincible and feels like he could he could do everything that Camille is doing if only they would give him a chance. Yeah, spoiled kid. <laughs> <laughs> Why does Camille get to go and I don't get to go? Why does Camille get attention and I don't get attention? I could pass for a college student. And he is surprised in the end not to be punished. And I wish I felt like there was more emotional weight to the scene where he's not being hit. He's basically getting a like, I'm just disappointed from Bright of like, don't treat your life cheaply. Don't throw your life away. Don't put yourself at risk when it's not necessary. But I don't really feel like it's given time to land. I don't feel like we get an emotional impact from that scene. Well, because it's interrupted immediately by Fa weeping. I had a question about that. She says that because of her, the city has been destroyed. I did not get a sense that the whole city was destroyed. I got a sense that one section of the city was badly damaged, but probably there was considerable chunks of the city that were not affected by the fight. I think that's the case. Okay. But she's kind of, oh no, I did, I ruined everything. Yeah. Like, okay. But Fa is, I think, right to blame herself. They get engaged by Yazan and the Hyzak team that he's with quite far away from the city. I think Emma even comments on how unusual it is that the Titans scouts would be out this far. But Fa panics. She's getting chased by Yazan in the Kaplant, and she flees immediately to the city. And then while she isn't the first one to damage the city, once there's an opening in one of the city's like dome things, she flies inside. She flees into the city, hoping to get away from the Kaplant. Which makes it so ironic that in that shelter, all of the civilians think it's the Titans' fault, that only the Titans would fight inside a city. It takes two to tango. 
Yeah, Camille is quick to point out that it doesn't super matter who started it. Uh, it's the people of Von Braun who are suffering. The whole process of people fleeing into a shelter and everything brought up two really significant issues. One, it made me think about how it must be a constant concern in a pressurized colony type situation that you'll have a leak. Uh, and so, of course, you would have shelters in the same way that people got really into bomb shelters during the Cold War. And you would know where the nearest shelter was and you would know where the nearest access to masks right. was. I uh, thought the masks were so cool, um, the way they sort of pop out of the walls everywhere. Mm -hmm. It made me think of how when you're on a ship, at least a modern boat that is conforming to all of the regulations, there are life preservers stuffed into like every available surface. Mm -hmm. You know, If there are cushions on any of the benches, they are life preservers. And like, yeah. Um, although it made me think of World War II and people running around London carrying their own gas masks. Yeah. Um, obviously, these space nodes are not carrying their own. There's like stashes built into the walls of the city. Uh, but it felt reminiscent of that. And then same, you know, seeking shelter, like knowing where the nearest bomb shelter is. It's been hard to tell until now how most space noids feel about the government on Earth or the Titans. Because we've been seeing everything from inside Ayug. And we know Ayug are kind of a fringe group. Uh, and so it's been hard to get a sense for things in that particular political dimension. But we see immediately in this shelter in Von Braun, the Titans have no legitimacy here. The public hates them. They blame them for the pollution on Earth. They blame them for the violence in space. They are not recognized as having any legitimate authority over Von Braun or any other space community. Although that then leads to one of the most revealing interactions of the entire episode when Camille and Katz leave the shelter. Jared goes to pursue them and the young boy, who looks like he's maybe even younger than Katz is, oh, yeah. stands up to block the door and he says, I'm not going to let you go. We know already that the Titans have no friends in this shelter. A shelter that is full of people. There's maybe 20 or 30 other people in the shelter, easy. And when this kid goes to block the door and, and Jared is staring him down... They're surrounded by people, mm -hmm. men and women, adults. But when Jared hits that kid, nobody moves. Also, nobody does a thing. Pointedly, Jared is not armed. Yeah. Neither is Moar. They Katz, just saw him get disarmed. They just saw Katz take his gun. If any one of those people had an iota of courage or any two or any three, if any of them could stand up for their convictions, they could easily have overpowered Jared and Moar. But it's only the child, only the kid, who has the courage to actually stand up to the Titans. And look what happens to him. I can tell you're still thinking about uh, the Tomino talk. We had the very good luck to hear Tomino speak this past weekend at Anime NYC. And one of the points that really stuck with Tom is that we're meant, while watching Gundam, to look at all of the adults as negative examples. You're not supposed to want to be like any adult person <laughs> in these shows. They're all terrible. You are supposed to see them, see their example, their pessimism, their cynicism, their gloom, their cruelty, their violence, their cowardice, and Run the other way. Be the opposite thing. And I think that's on display in this episode. I want to make one more point about Cats before we move on. Mm -hmm. Seeing Cats here, especially his jealousy when Camille gets recognized, shows us that in looking back on the one-year war, Cats has idolized Amaro, not his dad. Cats wants to be the hero. He doesn't want to be Hayato. Which, given what we've seen of Hayato, I'm sure Hayato understands completely. 
Even if he probably thinks, you big dumb idiot. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and this puts that scene of Hayato correcting cats back into the focus, especially when at the end of this, we see cats expecting to get a reprise and then instead only being scolded by Bright. We have to think about that scene again now. And from Hayato's perspective, as much as we still think that the violence is excessive and unnecessary, Hayato must be terrified that Katz is going to try to be a hero. Yep. I actually thought of that for a completely different reason. Because when Hayato is dressing down Katz, one of the things he mentions is that like new typeness is not just something that you get by fighting in space. Like there's an awareness that you cultivate, there's work you put in, and even then you might not get it. Like that it can't be taken for granted, that it shouldn't be used as a crutch or an excuse. And here we see several moments when Camille, deeply attuned, can feel that the fight has started, can feel that the Zeta is near, can sense all of these things, and Katz is oblivious. Katz can't feel any of it, nothing. I also liked the little bit of foreshadowing, it's sort of unrelated, but (laughs) Camille looks up from inside Von Braun through the skylights and sees Sirocco's ship leaving. And the skylights end up being very important later in the episode. So it's a nice uh, nod to that. They actually show those skylights quite a few times when they're doing establishing shots of Von Braun City. It's almost always skylight and then pan or shift or something. Do one of those camera techniques for moving from one thing to another thing into the city. And then we get that payoff when the Hyzak crashes through the window. This is another example of what I was talking about earlier, subverting expectations. Because the way this shot is composed, the way it starts, you have the Hyzak being pursued by Emma in the Mark II. She shoots it through the abdomen. It's a very precise shot. And then the Hyzak sort of falls off to the side. The way you expect this shot to go is that the camera then focuses on the Mark II and Emma flies off to do another heroic thing. Instead, the camera follows the Hyzak down, we lose track of the battle, and we focus on the Hyzak as it crashes through one of those domes. It crushes a car, and then it explodes. And we get a fairly long scene of the air being sucked out of Von Braun City, people being picked up and thrown around in the explosion. And then later we get a callback to this with another Hyzak falling and crushing a McDaniels restaurant. Speaking of Sirocco. Where is he going? What is he doing? Well, Jamaican claims that Sirocco is finally leaving for Jupitris. Uh, man, does Jamaican ever look like a total joke in this episode? <laughs> Do you think Sirocco knew when he turned over control of Von Braun City to Jamaican that there was no way they would be able to hold Von Braun for more than a few days? Yeah, I suspect so. And and Jamaican is the one standing on his own bridge being like, ugh, that Sirocco doesn't really understand what's important. But if I had to put money on who knows what's really going on, it'd be on Sirocco, not on Jamaican. Hmm. And then while I can understand him being unhappy <laughs> with Jared and Moar, his dismissiveness, the degree of patronizing he is, is really over the top. Uh, just go shopping or something. I don't need you. <laughs> and then he didn't actually mean that. He expected them to like fight back or insist on working or something. Uh, and he's like, oh, I can't believe they think of themselves as titans. He's a chump. Well, we know Jared doesn't respect him. And clearly Yazan, one of his lieutenants, doesn't either. 
because he launches the attack and one of his subordinates says, shouldn't we let the Alexandria know? And Yazan just ignores him. <laughs> oh, one quick note about Yazan, his clearly bigoted attitude towards space. He goes on a whole rant about his mobile suit and how because it was developed on Earth and used on Earth, it's superior to the ones that Ayug has made. And I'm like, what the what? Yeah, it doesn't necessarily follow. You're fighting in space. <laughs> what does working on Earth have to do with anything? <laughs> yeah. I mean, probably this is like a Earth chauvinist, like superior Earth engineering, not like those crummy space mobile suits. Those backward, uh, undeveloped space noids or yeah. whatever. Yeah. Well, it's like in the modern world, you know, products manufactured in China, for example, have a reputation for being shoddy, whereas it's almost like a shorthand for you know, quality to say that something was made in the USA. It's not necessarily true, but those are the impressions that at least people in the USA have <laughs> about products manufactured and designed in those different places. And this goes back historically, like at various different times, American razors were either considered particularly good or particularly poor. And it goes back to the fundamental underpinnings of how colonial imperialism worked. Raw materials were extracted from the colonies, transported back to the home country. There they were refined and then turned into manufactured goods. And those manufactured goods were then exported back to the colonies. And Fa does have some difficulties with her mobile suit in this episode, but I wasn't super clear how much of that is maybe that it takes some damage and the controls are unresponsive and how much of it is that she's kind of freaking out and not yep. managing this particular fight very well. And how much of it is just those crummy space engineered parts breaking down? <laughs> <laughs> All right, now I'm ready to talk about Jared. Okay. There's nothing in this episode that really represents any kind of development or forward motion for Jared, but it does cast in stark relief everything we've been noticing about his character recently, especially in that first scene where he encounters Camille in the process of being arrested by a Federation officer. And Jared intervenes on his behalf and says, oh, that's just my cousin. It's crazy about ships, <laughs> silly kid. And he does all of this not because he wants Camille to escape, but because he wants to capture Camille himself. And not just capture him, although... I really think that what happens to Jared here is he kind of doesn't know what to do with Camille once he has him in his clutches. Well, because he says he wants to kill him, but he has more than enough opportunity for that and he doesn't do it. Yeah, he could have killed Camille half a dozen times in this episode because he doesn't want to kill Camille. He wants to beat Camille in a mobile suit fight. See, I actually think we uh, get some very interesting philosophical insight into Jared's mind in this episode. Coming back to the, the fight theme Mohar says he's just a kid. Jared replies, he's not a kid. He killed Lila and Kakrakon. In Jared's mind, the act of killing has turned Camille into an adult. And Mohar continues to fixate on Camille's youth, his small size, these seeming emblems of childhood. And a step beyond that, she then asks Jared, oh, is he the new type? Camille insists he is not a new type. Jared gets angry. Are you telling me a normal kid killed Lila and Kakrakon? He like needs Camille to be a new type because that's the only way he can make sense in his mind of the fact that his mentors are dead and that he keeps being beaten. He needs Camille to be exceptional. Otherwise, he is a complete failure. This is why not only can he not kill Camille right now, but Jared can't beat Camille. 
from a narrative standpoint, and also I think from a psychological one for Jared, he can't beat Camille until he feels like he has actually transcended his own current state and reached the next level. Because if he were to beat Camille, that would mean he was better than Lila and he was better than Kakrakon. And psychologically, Jared can't accept that. The deaths of Lila and Kakrakon have kind of turned them into martyrs for him, which means he still feels like he's chasing after them. And he always will, unless something happens that allows him to elevate himself. And I don't think beating Camille would be enough. I think if he beat Camille in his current state, it would be completely unsatisfying. It would leave him more of a wreck than he is now. Because suddenly he would also be purposeless. There's no sense that he feels any particular like ideological connection to the Titans at this point. It's all about vengeance. His goal is to get stronger so that he can get vengeance on all the people who have wronged him. And that's a list that starts with Camille, includes Jamaican, and goes indefinitely. Moar seems to think that he's learning some self-control, that he is acting less impulsively over time. I think that's probably true, though it does feel like she's giving him an awful lot of credit. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Well, I think that's true of both him and Camille. Both of them are much more in control of their emotions. I thought about that because I feel like it gets contrasted with Camille having, I think, Emma call him away from the battlefield. Like the fight's over. We've taken back the city. Like it doesn't actually serve our purposes to chase down these mobile suits. Yeah. And he, he doesn't really fight it. He's like, oh, okay. I understand. I will say there's a shift in Camille from most of the episode when he's on foot, when he's out being Shri Climb, (laughs) age 18, college student. And then once he gets into the Zeta, that is when his emotions take control of him a little bit. That's when the passion comes out is when he's fighting in the Zeta. I thought it was worth noting that he doesn't sense Rekua's presence. He senses the Zeta's presence. Did you notice that? I feel like normally when he gets a sense of something, he's feeling people. Mm-hmm. Not here. Here he's feeling the Zeta. The visual shows us Rekua's face for a second, but he does say the Zeta is coming. Yeah, that's interesting. I also want to point out, we already talked about the scene in the park where Jared, Moar, and Camille are all arguing about whether Camille is a child and whether Camille is a new type. Camille doesn't say anything about whether he's a child or not. No response at all to that. He does deny his new typeness. Later, when he's fighting Yazan and Yazan calls him a child and Camille is in the Zeta, that's when Camille denies that he's a child. I'm not a child. And he tries to kill him. How can Haro be sick? He's got a virus. We don't have to get into it right now, but the fact that Haro trips Rekoa so that Fa can get in the methods and is like, go Fa. And she's like, thank you, Haro. <laughs> uh, has some, I think, deeply interesting and uncomfortable implications in terms of Haro's AI. Yeah. If Haro's AI can can like have favorites, can act with partiality towards certain people, like that's pretty advanced. Yeah. Kind of ominous. Haro doesn't belong to Fa. We have every indication that Haro belongs to Camille. And yet... Like, Haro has formed an attachment, seemingly, Mm. to this other person. And Haro wants Fa in the Methus. What is Haro's game? Also, just going to point out, this is not the first time a Haro has tripped someone. It happened once before in First Gundam, uh, when a Zeon soldier was trying to escape the white base. I don't know that there's a connection, but it's worth pointing out.
And now our research section. First up, we have some Japanese language notes from Nina, then a discussion of Von Braun City's name, followed by desertification, and hopefully our final update, revealing the true meaning of The Birds Will Laugh at Me. Before I get into it, the usual disclaimer applies. I am a non-native speaker with an imperfect understanding of the language. If you catch something I've gotten wrong, please let me know. I am learning, and making mistakes is inevitably part of that. But I'm a pretty thorough researcher, so let's see where that takes us. <laughs> From the first time we hear the term in this show, we thought that recreation meant basically the same thing it does in English. Recreation, something you do for fun and relaxation. But in that case, it felt odd that it's used to describe Camille's squabbles with other members of the crew, including their brawl on the bridge, and his relationship with Fa, which is characterized more by coldness and arguments than by fun. Some foreign loanwords come to have a different meaning in Japanese. For instance, saboru, which means to play hooky or to cut class, is from sabotage. Smato is from smart, as in stylish or well put together, but in Japanese also means slim. So I did some digging to see if recreation might also have changed. Now, I don't think I had ever looked up the word recreation in an English dictionary. It's one of those words I learned contextually, from reading and TV and listening to adults talk. But to accurately compare meanings, I thought it best to consult some experts. Merriam-Webster defines recreation as refreshment of strength and spirits after work, also a means of refreshment or diversion, and Dictionary.com describes it as refreshment by means of some pastime, agreeable exercise, or the like or a pastime diversion exercise, or other resource affording relaxation and enjoyment. Rather than relying on a Japanese-to-English dictionary, I turned to a Japanese online dictionary for a more thorough definition and explanation. In this case, I used Kotobank, which pulls together definitions from several different sources onto a single page. The word recreation has been in use in Japan since the Meiji period, but came into common usage in the post-war period. One thing the Japanese definitions emphasize is that recreation is the thing you do to recharge and recuperate the mind and body from the strain of work or school, with particular attention to the worries, restrictions, and responsibilities or compulsory activities of daily life. In the sense that recreation is not those things? Yes, that it helps you recover from those things and relax after dealing with those things. This can include hobbies, entertainment, socializing, and travel. The only restriction on these activities is that they must be something that's good for you, something replenishing. Several of the definitions also brought up that while recreation used to be community-based, the work life of Japanese people in the post-war period had led to an increase in workplace-based recreation. Uh, for example, workplace sports days and things of that nature. This feels more connected to the way recreation is used in Zeta. Military life in wartime is full of stresses and duties, and your behavior is under strict control. This would be compounded aboard a ship. There are very few spaces meant for relaxation, and your social circle is entirely composed of co-workers, many of them your direct superiors or direct subordinates. When characters talk about recreation, they're talking about letting off steam that small personal conflicts, even roughhousing and physical fights, are a necessary means of releasing the tension of day-to-day -day life aboard the Argama. And it's always between people who are relative equals. 
I still didn't feel that this gave a clear picture as to why Camille and Fa's relationship is recreation, but I have a couple of theories. One is that as the only people their age aboard the Argama, and as people of similar rank in the organization, Camille and Fa get necessary socialization from each other. <laughs> Although it does seem as if the adults around them either do not see or do not recognize the discomfort caused by their constant conflict with each other. My other theory is that recreation applied to this kind of relationship is like the English phrase casual dating. The implication is that, yes, there's some romance and attraction there, but that their relationship is about having fun together. That it's not serious or going anywhere. I hope you can hear my air quotes. <laughs> uh, you know, puppy love, as the olds might say. A lot of the reactions other characters have to the two of them, I think especially Emma in her facial expressions and her general avoidance of getting involved, play into this theory. That this is sort of a natural part of them growing up, right? That they have these crushes and have this dis uncomfortable relationship, but that it's normal for their age and even healthy. And so it's good for them to have that outside of their work. This ties in maybe a little bit to what Rekua was saying when Fa was being corrected. And Rekua tells Camille, you're going to miss this kind of thing when you're older. Like, not just that you're going to miss being corrected, but you're going to miss all of the low stakes, not very serious relationships of being 17. Not that they feel low stakes. Oh, no. Like... When you're 17, <laughs> literally everything feels like it's the most important thing in the world. Yes. Um, I'm not so old that I have ceased to remember. <laughs> but I do think the the attitude of the adults around them is... This is a casual thing. It's not like you kids are going to get married. Like, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and now on to the joy of grammar. Ooh. When Fob bursts into tears about the harm her actions caused to the citizens of Von Braun, she's in the background of this scene. And Camille in the foreground, his face shadowed, speaks quietly as if only talking to himself. He says, Shikashi, inda. Which is translated as, but it's all right, because we all survived. I didn't think anything of it until Tom asked me, what does the nda ending on those sentences mean? Like so many of the most interesting grammar points to talk about, this one is difficult to translate, but adds some nuance to what Camille is saying. In Japanese, you can make a statement that reports or observes a piece of information, or you can use this to make a statement that is an explanation. It implies additional information, responds to another statement or question, and can add emphasis or emotion to a statement. For those of you who know a bit of Japanese, there are a few different forms this takes, depending on whether the context is written or spoken, more formal or more casual, or whether the speaker is a man or a woman. In writing, it's usually no des. Nda, which is what Camille says, is a more casual version of ndes and is used more frequently by men. The casual spoken version for women is no. The combination of the way the scene is structured visually with the grammar of the sentence gives it additional meaning. Camille isn't speaking to Fa directly. In fact, he has his back to her. So he isn't explaining to her that it's all okay because they survived. He's not comforting her. 
Watching this scene again, it seems he is really explaining to himself, comforting himself. The emotional emphasis of the explanation, aimed at no one in particular, tells us that Camille is working very hard to justify to himself the collateral damage caused by Ayuk. He seems to have become accustomed to the idea that killing enemy combatants is necessary, but death and other harm to civilians is another matter, and one which takes some mental and emotional effort to deal with. Von Braun is the best possible name for this city, and I can explain why. Born in 1912 in what is now Poland but was then part of the German Empire, Werner Magnus Maximilian Freiherr von Braun, better known to history as Werner von Braun, is one of the most famous names in the history of space exploration. His passion for rockets was the one constant in a life caught in the most turbulent currents of the 20th century. It would make him an active participant in some of the era's greatest triumphs, and some of its worst atrocities. A member of nobility and the descendant of at least four different kings via his mother's family, the young von Braun developed an early interest in astronomy and rocketry that got him arrested at 12 years old when he tried to imitate the rocket-propelled cars of the era, constructing his own by attaching fireworks to a toy wagon. The unmanned and unguided vehicle careened wildly back and forth in a busy street and then exploded. Perhaps not the most auspicious start to his career. Von Braun graduated from technical college with a degree in mechanical engineering in 1932, and two years later he received a doctorate in physics. Around this time he is said to have met a famous high-altitude balloonist and to have remarked on his own intention to someday journey to the moon. His graduation coincided with the Nazi takeover of the German government, and the early part of his career was spent working on experimental rockets for the German military. When the war ended, von Braun became one of the key figures in Operation Paperclip, a massive American intelligence operation that exfiltrated 1,600 German scientists and engineers so that they could be employed in service to the American government. Although initially treated like prisoners by their new employers, Von Braun and the other German scientists would eventually earn the trust of the U.S. Army, and by the mid-1950s, he was talking openly about using the rockets he was developing to travel to the moon. He even wrote a science fiction novel around this time about traveling to Mars, but it was by all accounts a terrible piece of fiction. He also collaborated with Walt Disney for a series of educational films about space. He theorized about spaceflight, and in 1960, he became the first director of NASA's Marshall Space Flight Center in Huntsville, Alabama. There, he oversaw development of the famous Saturn V rocket, the rocket that fulfilled von Braun's lifelong dream by propelling the astronauts of Apollo 11 to the moon. Von Braun left NASA in 1972, frustrated by waning interest in space exploration. He went into private business for a while, his health declined, and he died in 1977, 65 years old. He did have one last legacy at NASA, though. Five years after his death, inspired by a comment he had made in the last months of his life, NASA started their space camp program to prepare the next generation of space scientists. But you've probably noticed some omissions from that version of his story. Would it be too much for me to say that, just like the moon at which he always aimed, there was a darker side to his career, too? Von Braun was a Nazi. There's no ambiguity about that. He joined the Nazi party in 1937, and in 1940 he joined the SS. He would later claim that he joined the party only because it was a condition for his continuing to work on rocketry projects for the military. 
But that was shortly after he surrendered to the United States in an interview with Army Intelligence, during which he misrepresented other facts about his Nazi Party membership. But whether he bought into the Nazis' beliefs or not, he continued to design rockets for them, and it was not for space exploration. From at least as early as 1934, he worked on classified rocket artillery development for the German army. He designed some rocket-powered planes for the Luftwaffe, but most of his work, the work that made him famous and so valuable to the Allies after the war, was on ballistic missiles. Specifically, he oversaw the team that developed the V-2 rocket, a long-range ballistic missile with a rudimentary guidance system that was fired at Paris, London, Antwerp, and other Allied cities by the thousands in the closing days of the war. By the time the V-2 was ready, the Allied landings had happened. Paris had already been liberated. The war was coming swiftly to its end. The first V-2 to strike London killed a 63-year-old woman, a 3-year-old girl, and a soldier on leave. They would kill thousands more as the retreating Germans manufactured and fired as many of the vengeance weapons as they could. The last V-2 was fired six months later, on the 27th of March, 1945, killing a 34-year-old woman in her home in Kent. But even this was not the darkest point in von Braun's career as a Nazi scientist. And when I say that there was something else darker than enabled the killings of thousands of civilians purely for the sake of vengeance, you know it's got to be bad. The V-2 rockets were built by enslaved laborers imprisoned in concentration camps under horrendous conditions. More people died building the V-2s than were killed by them as weapons. And von Braun knew about all of this. He admitted to visiting the production plant and was aware that workers were dying as they built his rockets. He claimed never to have visited the concentration camp and to have been ignorant of the worst abuses, to have objected to the practices, but to have felt helpless to do anything about it. But these self-serving defenses are contradicted by accounts from survivors of the camps, who reported seeing von Braun there regularly, and witnessing his direct involvement in selecting the imprisoned and enslaved laborers for his project. And even after his surrender to the United States, von Braun's legacy is not without complications. His first major project for the U.S. government was the Redstone rocket, the first missile to carry a live nuclear warhead. When the first V-2 rockets landed in London, von Braun is said to have remarked that the rocket functioned perfectly, except that it landed on the wrong planet. In mocking von Braun years later, one American comedian would put it this way, I aim for the stars, but sometimes I hit London. From the moment he lit the fuse on the fireworks strapped to his toy wagon in the middle of a busy street, or when, in his twenties, he and a friend conducted crude experiments on mice in his apartment, to see what happened when they were subjected to extreme G-forces, von Braun was always more interested in the rockets than the consequences. I started all of this by saying that von Braun was the best possible name for this city, but it's not just because he's a famous name in space exploration history, and it's not just because his life and legacy were morally ambiguous in much the same way that Zeta Gundam is, with allegiances shifting as yesterday's enemies become today's allies, although it absolutely is partly because of those things. First, Von Braun City is built around the footprint from Neil Armstrong's first footstep on the moon, a footstep that was made possible by Von Braun's work first on the V-2 and then on the Saturn V, which was itself a part of the legacy of the V-2 program. Incidentally, I should note here that there is a crater on the moon already named for Von Braun, 
but it is very far away from the Apollo 11 landing site, and so it cannot be the location of Von Braun City. But now remember why the Titans are so eager to capture Von Braun City. It is a staging ground from which whoever holds it can invade or bombard the Earth at will. During the prior episode, Torres even reported that the Titans were using long-range missiles for their warning shots. All of this, long-range missiles, long-range bombardment for strategic purposes, those are Von Braun's legacy as much as is the manned mission to the moon. There's no way that Zeta's writers were not very much aware of what they were about with the names in these episodes. After all, consider the poetic symmetry in the Titans naming their mission to capture the city built around the site of humanity's first landing on the moon, Operation Apollo, a reference we cannot doubt to the Apollo program and that first moon landing. Lex, frustrated with the short-sightedness of Earth politicians, exclaims that more than half of Africa is desert. We understand, though he never explicitly says so, that the ecological degradation of the Earth is a major factor in their push for all of humanity, politicians included, to go to space. In our own time, Africa is about 25% desert. I only found one source on this, and it isn't dated, but it's an okay starting point for our discussion. I don't know how much that number has changed in the past 35 years, but it certainly didn't double. For it to reach over 50% would represent catastrophic conditions, and yet the politicians of the UC insist that everything is fine. So, what would increase the amount of desert on the African continent? Was there particular concern about it in the 1980s? And is there any connection to Dakar, Senegal, the city in which the Federation government meets? The term for the process of arable land becoming desert is desertification. As a child, I thought this meant that the Sahara was slowly expanding and encroaching on the land around it, which is what a lot of people used to think, it turns out, including some scientists. But although desertification is a problem on the land that borders the Sahara, that isn't how it happens. Desertification can occur naturally, but in this case is being caused by human activity global warming-induced drought, deforestation, and over-exploitation of soil. Drought and deforestation can cause erosion. Topsoil is washed away by rain or blown away in the wind. In the past 100 years or so, there has been a 25% increase in the amount of dust in the air. Soil can also change from being arable, able to grow food crops, to being non-arable if it is constantly in use without ever having its nutrients replenished. This can be done with fertilizers or with certain crops that are grown not to be harvested, but to be plowed back into the soil. Overgrazing by herd animals can also damage once productive land. Dry lands are most susceptible to desertification, and they account for just under half of Earth's non-ice-covered landmass. There's a region in Africa called the Sahel. It stretches from west through central Africa and is sandwiched between the Sahara Desert in the north and the savanna grasslands in the south. Dakar, in the far west of Africa, is in the Sahel. This area has experienced major droughts periodically throughout history, but in the 20th century seemed to be having them more frequently, including one from the late 60s to mid-70s and another in the early to mid-80s. 
These droughts had massive impacts across West Africa and drew international attention to how drought contributed to desertification, creating conditions for widespread famine. In response to the first of these droughts, the United Nations held the UN Conference on Desertification in Nairobi in 1977. The UN estimates that 135 million people will be displaced by desertification by 2045, as previously habitable land becomes uninhabitable. This was already a pressing ecological issue in the 1980s, with clear effects on the livability of the planet for a significant portion of the human population. And then, as now, not enough resources are being committed to truly tackle the problem. By and large, the people affected by desertification live in poverty, and it's not hard to imagine that the lack of resources devoted to the problem is directly related to the poverty and lack of political power of those affected. But they don't have the luxury of insisting that everything is fine, because it's their crops that fail, their livestock that die, and their families that starve. I hope you all think of this when we talk about climate change, as I'm sure it will continually come up in numerous Gundam series, because the above isn't just true for desertification. When the consequences fall out, through sea level rise, floods, droughts, storms, crop failures, it's people living in poverty who suffer the most and have the fewest options. And sometimes they get forced off of the planet to live in colonies in space. There are uh, several plans in place. One is called the Great Green Wall Project, which is quite evocative. Uh, A project like it has been done in China with quite good success. However, in Africa, this is a project that would need to be coordinated across half a dozen or more different governments. And there's much less political power and money available to make it happen. The original plan was to plant basically a massive windbreak to prevent erosion and spreading by the wind. So basically tons and tons of trees. Now they've realized that's not really very effective or the best use of money. Those dry land habitats are very difficult to grow trees in. uh, And a lot of that area is uninhabited right now. And so there's nobody to tend the trees to increase the success rate of those trees in the environment. They're much better off planting sort of scrubbier plants that are hardier in those conditions, as well as doing sort of intensive support for people farming and herding in the area to enrich the land that they're farming on, to introduce more sustainable farming methods and herding methods. But here's the thing. If we know more or less what needs to be done, and it seems that uh, we do know what needs to be done to remediate this, and it's not fully being done, That's because of a lack of resources and a lack of interest. And now we have a third and perhaps final note for you all about Camille's, to us at least, odd mention of birds laughing at him if he dies with a messy room. To remind you, Nina confirmed that the phrase, the birds will laugh at me itself, was not a common saying in Japanese. But we have since heard from one of our patrons, Martin, who told us that his wife, coming at the question from a slightly different direction, might have just solved the mystery. Rather than going looking for references to laughing birds, she immediately thought of the Japanese saying, Tatsutori ato o nigosazu. Literally, this means, the bird taking flight does not muddy its tracks. Or, you could say, a bird doesn't leave its nest messy. 
to rob the phrase of all its punch and eloquence, but to get the actual message across, we might say, when you are leaving a place, you should ensure that everything is in good order. Some translators recommend using the parallel English idiom, it's an ill bird that fouls its own nest, which is elegant enough, but the English one is more about not causing problems for yourself, while the Japanese one seems to be more about not creating problems that other people are going to need to solve. For example, one site I found used that Japanese saying as a way to talk about how to deal with the chaos that is caused whenever an employee quits suddenly. And so now this makes perfect sense, doesn't it? Birds don't just fly off and leave problems for other people to clean up. They would relentlessly mock Camille for it if he died and left behind problems for his crewmates. Coming in the same scene where Emma helps him with his cleaning and he digs out a Hong Kong souvenir for Torres, it serves to emphasize Camille's growing interdependence with the rest of the Argama crew, his desire to fit in and not make trouble, and his awareness that he could die at any moment. He needs to be ready for it every time he sorties. But perhaps most curiously of all, this is not the first time that a bird flying off has been used in Gundam as a metaphor for death. Remember Lala, after all. Next time on episode 2.26, All This Has Happened Before, we cover Mobile Suit Zeta Gundam episode 25 and... Oh, cats. Camille, you decide. No pressure. Man, f*** off, Wong. Oh no, cats. The appearance of impropriety. One weird trick to totally stop Ayug. Cats, no! What it takes to get a one-week paid vacation. Spinny, spinny! Cats, you big dumb idiot! And an entirely predictable twist. You will see the tears of time. Remember to do all of the podcast things. Subscribe and review Mobile Suit Breakdown wherever you get your podcasts. Then pledge your undying devotion to Mobile Suit Breakdown on Patreon, where you can find great bonus content, get access to the MSB Discord, get exclusive MSB merchandise, and, you know, support the podcast. You can also follow at Gundam Podcast on Twitter and Instagram, and like us at facebook.com slash Gundam Podcast for all kinds of extra content. And you should always check out our website, GundamPodcast.com, for all of our episodes, show notes, watch list, wish list, some other lists, and more. Plus, you can always email your questions, comments, and complaints to GundamPodcast at gmail.com. Or just shout your wrong Gundam opinion to us in person by coming to scenic New York City and yelling, Quattro Bagina is the leader Ayug needs in this dark time. On any busy street corner, we will totally hear you. The intro song is Wasp by Misha Dioxin, and the closing music is Long Way Home by Spinning Ratio. You can find links and more in the show notes. And thank you for listening. That might be a little, that might be a bridge too far. Yeah, I think it might be. Um, We're so close to being done. I know. When the Zaku, Zaku.
tired. I'm tired. I'm so tired. I'm so tired all the time. The Nina, it screams like a goat. What is that? Is there a word for that? I think it's called holiday, vacation, even. <sighs> okay, <clears throat> putting on my best newsreel voice. Should I even mention that here? Then this is like no. That's not good. Talk about bomb run. That's what I'm gonna do, yo. Sorry, that turned out to be a bummer. My next one is two. Oh no! Personally, I think the Great Wall of Farms, Herds, and Shrubs is more than evocative enough. <laughs> Sustainable farms, herds, and shrubs. So, if any of you are, uh, so if any of our listeners are powerful and influential African politicians, please save your continent or billionaires who don't know what to do with all your money grab a couple of those billions put it to work channeling quattro today i see my guns will not be restrained by the gravity of sleeves you should say that into the mic my guns will not be restrained by the gravity of sleeves you should make that noise into the mic <laughs> you just want me to do everything in the mic. <laughs> yes Hello again. It's <laughs> been a minute. And we're back. <laughs> I'm really curious how common the it's been a minute phrasing is throughout the United States. Because I had never heard it before I came to New York. Let us know. <laughs> yeah. Have you ever heard someone say, it's been a minute? And mean a long time, not a short time. Not a minute of time, but this, a minute. This really threw me when I first <laughs> came here. Somehow, I always knew that I would die in Shah Aznable's arms. I wrote so many fanfics about this moment. Shah, if you see Quattro, tell him that he was a terrible bodyguard. Ugh. Ugh. When Shar is your subordinate, you die three times faster. Also, when Shar is your commander, 